0: Hello, and welcome to On Record, In Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Adrian Goldberg talks to Lloyd Blake. A pioneering champion of black music, Lloyd was part of the team that opened the legendary Hummingbird Music Venue. Adrian discusses with Lloyd the reality of operating the first black-led major city centre venue in the UK, the challenges he faced and Lloyd's enduring impact on Birmingham's music and cultural landscape.
1: My name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to our final on-record conversation for the B2022 Festival. You might think that we have saved... The best for last. Our guest was born in Jamaica, as we'll hear, grew up with some of the greats of rocksteady and reggae, came to Birmingham as a young man, though not as young as you might think. He became the first black owner of a prominent events venue in the city and later campaigned actively for better representation for black music on the BBC. On a personal note, he has fathered 12 children, grandfathered to 37 great-grandfather to 53, and great-great-grandfather to four. It's a wonder he's got the energy to be with us. Lloyd Blake! (laughs) Where did it all start for you, Lloyd, and when?
2: (laughs) Um, Those children and grandchildren is because I had my children when I was young, and so my children had theirs young as well and so forth. But I was born in Kingston, Jamaica. My father was from a parish called St. Elizabeth, the first parish in Jamaica to have gotten electricity, believe it or not. Uh, My mother came from St. Catherine, and my father and mother both were in the fishing industry. He was a fisherman. She sold fish in the market. They met, came to Kingston. Seven of us were born in Kingston. My mother had a daughter before she met my father, and she was born in St. Catherine. So as we know, St. Catherine, was the first capital of Jamaica. Kingston is the second capital. So so I grew up in West Kingston with all my brothers and sisters who unfortunately, as I sit here, have all passed away. I had to bury all of them. Natural causes, but here I am. I was twin. And there were two other brothers who were also twins. So you're lucky to have just got me alone. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been double trouble. And you were born in 1941? 1941.
1: What, what was Jamaica in the 40s and the 50s like?
2: Um, Jamaica suffered like any other country in the Caribbean and in the third world country, from the throes, the backbiting and, and the backstabbing of what came out of the wars. Things were bad. People struggled. Families struggled to send their children to school. Struggled to make a living. But people were ambitious give them an opportunity, and they'll make the best of it. But things were tough in the early days.
1: Yeah, and when you were a young lad growing up then, what were your hopes and dreams and aspirations?
2: When I was about 13, 14, I got involved in a youth club. Um, anybody here who has been to Jamaica or who's from Jamaica hopefully will know the Coronation Market at Darling Street and Spanish Own Road. The Tivoli Garden that we hear about, infamous or famous Tivoli Garden, was opposite the the coronation market. My school, Ebenezer Primary School, was right opposite the coronation market. So I grew up there, and age 13, I joined the youth club in that same school. And we had a group of us who used to compete against each other every day to see who could read better, who understood grammar better than the other. And that helped, because we all competed against each other. And so education became an important factor in our lives. I joined the youth club, and at 17, I started observing people who were coming to the youth club, what they were doing. And at 17, I got involved in a group who boasted about reading a book per day. So I was reading economics, sociology, politics, sexology. And I taught politics, economics, business, and by reading so much, I looked across the waters to America. And I developed an ethos called EMAS or EMAS or MASE. That is E-M-A-S or E-M-A-S-E. E for education, M for motivation or music, A for athletics, S for sport, E at the end for employment. Then you turn it around, Marseille, music, athletics, sports, education, employment. And from that early age, I developed that in my mind to say education first. And through education, the rest will come. And if you haven't got the opportunity to gain good education, then like they did in America, you get ahead through music, athletics, sports. America developed the university scholarships where they took rude boys bad boys boys who didn't get on properly out there and gave them scholarships and you look even now music athletics sports and when you earn through those factors you then buy education and i follow that and quickly saying one of my sons noel blake who used to play football for birmingham and villa down here and ended up managing England on the nineteenth he wasn't brilliant early. He was in woodwork and all that. But through, through his is football, when he finished with football, he went to Manchester University and gained a degree in education because of what I developed from Jamaica there.
1: Did that give you as much pride as his football career?
2: It did, because yeah. to have my son being the manager for England on the nineteenth from two thousand and nine to 2010 and 14, the first black director of a football academy at Stoke gave me great pride.
1: Tell me back to Jamaica, though, because I mentioned in my introduction that you grew up with some of the greats of Rocksteady and Reggae. Who were you at school with?
2: <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> Bernie Dixon knows this, and one in two others you might know. In Jamaica, we had what we call first class, second class, third class, sixth class was the highest You've got form, so what you call it here. And at sixth class, before you leave school, I sat in a row of seats with a young man called Robert Nestor Marley. You were not to know that he was going to be what he became or I was going to be what I became. Uh, Miss Doran was our teacher and I watched him. While she wasn't brilliant academically, you could tell that He was good lyrically with what he said, how he spoke. And as it turned out, my youth club, my school closed, became a youth club called Operation Friendship. I wear a ring that 400 young people gave me, put their little pennies and gave me, including Bob. And in the youth club, Bob started to come to my youth club in the evenings. It's on Google, I've got it, at home, where he said... He started at operation, Friendship, where an old man used to bring a guitar. It wasn't me. I used to get an old man to bring a guitar <laughs> to help. I was a youth leader. And he said, he learned to hit pans and boxes there, and that's where it started, his own words, before he went to Trenchtown. And i move forward quickly. Um, a few years ago, I went to Miami, and I nipped over to see my mother when I went over there. I had learned about Miss Marley, who was looking after my mother, making sure she had her food and her soup and her rum, and I was sending her money to pay. And when I went over there, they went across the street and brought Miss Marley in. It was Bob's sister, Dorothy Marley. I've got pictures at home with us. She's sitting in the middle, my mother and me, taking a lovely picture. <laughs> so, you know, and uh, along the way, I interviewed Ziggy Marley, for the hummingbird and Ziggy Rita Marley and I had a good shot and the rest of it and so forth and so forth.
1: So Bob Marley, who knows, might not have been Bob Marley without the the start at your youth club.
2: And James Chambers, a.k.a. Jimmy Cliff, and Delroy Wilson, who for the first time when he came out to sing in the public, he sung at my youth club. My youth club had won won a cricket championship and we wanted someone to sing for us. And Coxon and Dodd, we know of Studio One, Coxon Dodd brought him. So the first time Delroy Wilson sang in public, he sang at my youth club. Alton Ellis used to come to my yard where his girlfriend lived and so forth. Ken Booth's sister, Shirley Booth was at my youth club. The great Roland Alfonso, who played tennis saxophone for the Scatterlights, was one of my daughter's godfathers. So I grew up with music in me. And we'll come to them in very quickly. I looked across the waters in my research. I said earlier, I was reading, reading, reading. And I believe in a form of racism. I developed that in my philosophical the reading, philosophy, and sociology and economics. I accept that racism is something that will never go away from the world. So I'm not afraid of racism. But I believe in a form of racism called first race ism. If each of us look after our race first, then equality comes because we're looking after our own race. And then if I have something that you need, we can barter. So I believe in race first. And believing in race first caused me to say, what's my culture? But 17, 18, 19, when I sat there in the theater watching Leon Warwick at age 17. What's my culture? Music food, the way we dress, the way we talk. But music, because of the Ellis and the Delroy Wilson and the Roland Alfonso and Jimmy Cliff and all those around me, caused me to look across the waters, to look at Harlem.
1: To Harlem in New York.
2: The Apollo Theatre. In every country, it seems, there is an Apollo Theatre. But the Apollo in Harlem was, still is, the theatre for black people. And when I saw that, I thought, when I grew up watching this, promoted, promoting these artists in Jamaica, I need a venue to promote, preserve, develop black music from I was 17 years of age.
1: Now, eventually, you came to Birmingham and you founded The Hummingbird, and we'll talk about that, but don't jump too far ahead, Lord. I want to know a little bit more about the leaving of Jamaica. How did you end up in Birmingham
2: my girlfriend's mother came to England I mentioned the children I had earlier excuse me my first child was born when I was 14 years of age when you're young in Africa and the Caribbean and you're on your corner you're teased by your friends if by 16 17 you have made a girl pregnant and on the corner things happen you know nothing about what you're ignorant you're young and you're, exper- you're experimenting, you're exploring. I was 14 when that child was born. The mother was 16. And two years after, another one born. And two years after, and then you're part company, you're part, and you start saying, I'm a young king. And when I was 19, I had five children with three mothers. Nothing to boast about. I'm just stating the facts. I ended up having my 12 children with six mothers. I was married twice didn't work out. But I came to England because that first, not the first, second child's mother, her mother came to England and we had an argument And she said, we finished stay in England, goodbye. But before she came, we got married. I was age 24, just in case the immigration rules say you can't come unless you're married. So we got married, I was age 24. But you notice my stick, I was born with an ailment called muscular dystrophy. It's a form of muscular dystrophy where that is very thin, and that, was, that is thin. So your yes, left, right, left arm and your right leg. Both legs. Um, my mother and her father had it so. Boys, girls, boys, girls. Two of my daughters walk worse than me. So I thought, I'm not going to cold England. I was then a youth worker in this operation friendship. I went one weekend to a conference, and, and I spoke on philosophy and economics at that young age, and Social Development Commission kept the weekend conference, and after the weekend, I learned through the grapevine that they thought I did well, and they would give me a scholarship to come to Peru, go to Peru for six months, England six months, to develop my youth work. I heard nothing about it for months, but one day, the director of the Social Development Commission saw me and said, did you enjoy your trips? I said, I didn't go anywhere. And she said, oh my God. She realized that my boss, who was a pastor, had taken it because he had said, Lloyd is all right, he's a bit young, let me go and come back and pass the the knowledge down.
1: So you have been cheated out of this big prize.
2: By a pastor, and from (laughs) then on, I stopped going to church. (laughs) I don't believe in God anymore. Some of my friends might not like me to say that. I believe in creation, sun, moon what nature does, the butterfly from the caterpillar, but I don't believe in a creator.
1: But the pastor was important, wasn't he, Lloyd?
2: But he was important in this way. By doing that to me, I then said to him, I'm not going to say I hate you, but I can't stand in the same room as you. And he said, OK, I'll lend you some money to go and join your wife. So he paid for me to go on a banana boat called the Marsatana, a real banana boat. (laughs) And I came here to join my wife in Birmingham. Whereabouts? Sparkbrook. You
1: were, you were young-ish. 27 years 27 ago. older, though, perhaps, than some people coming to arrive mm-hmm. from Jamaica. What kind of reception did you get as a black man arriving in 1968? I
2: arrived at Southampton with 12 pounds in my pocket. My wife didn't come to meet me. A young man called Pally and used to play Sound System from West Brom. He came and he was taking people up and he saw me. He said, young man... I've been watching you. Nobody has come for you. I said, "My wife isn't here." And he said, "Your wife? Sure? <laughs> she you sure?" Anyway, he took me to Birmingham, and luckily, my youth club—a young lady was there who came a few months before I came up, and I gave him the address, and he took me there, and then found my wife three days after with a fourteen-month-old child. Anyway. A different story. So was <laughs> she thrilled to see you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I came and that was the, uh, the the situation I came in. But I wanted to go home immediately. I didn't want to stay in England. I hated it, I cried a few days, uh I had no choice but to stay. And in terms of racism, my encounter early early then was about two weeks while I was living in Main Street Spa. I was going around the corner to a shop to get some biscuits or something. A car pulled up, about five, six white young men in it, stopped and asked me for a direction. And as I am a well-trained, well-mannered young man from West Kingston who learned, yes, please and thank you, and to help a stranger, I leant forward and to say, if you turn right, go left. And I felt, wow, in my head. And they drove off laughing. I give thanks that it was not an iron pipe. Otherwise, I would have been dead within weeks of coming to England. It was like wood or something, and so.
1: 1968 was the year of the "Rivers of Blood" speech by Enoch Powell, given just down the road at a hotel in central mm-hmm. Birmingham. Mm-hmm. How did it feel in the weeks after that, especially given that experience? I
2: hated white people up to a point, but because of my learning in Jamaica, I used to go up north every two weeks. North meaning uptown and to talk for the underprivileged young people of west kingston i think i was a good speaker they say and i read and i learned and so i was in society in terms of interacting so i didn't hate white generally but i hated that element of white people the racists who ate me because i'm black who if they were educated enough would understand that my race is superior historically to the white race, according to science, because life could only have started in a warm country, around the equator in Africa. And a white man is a black man that got white by leaving the warmth, going out, losing the way, can't come back, eventually got lost, and your skin changed with nature and so forth. So if all human beings are one, And nothing exists without something having started. And if life, as the scientists say, with all the fossils they've found, started with a black person who came out of a chimpanzee, then we are all human beings of equality. So I don't hate all whites. I hate those who attack me without reason.
1: So you settled eventually in Spark Hill. Mm -hmm. That was in... 1968. Now, those of us who grew up in Birmingham in the 80s and 90s will remember with real love and affection your events venue called The Hummingbird, which had just an incredible array of bands on and all sorts of stuff as well. How did you move from Spark Brook to opening The Hummingbird, which you'd had this vision of back in Jamaica of creating an Apollo somewhere else?
2: I came with that concept of when I could, I needed a venue. That venue couldn't be just for me. It had to be a venue for the whole community. I learned business ethos early. In Jamaica night school, when I came here, I did some studies at Winterburn School of Continued Education at Birmingham University and BCU and got some management studies in economics and blah, blah, blah. I realized that I needed a team around me who understood That we were not doing this for ourselves we were doing it to leave a legacy for as long as life lasts like the apollo so when i came with youth work behind me within two weeks there was a place called mount pleasant center in balsalit i joined as a volunteer youth worker and within two three months i became the deputy head of center all this time within the back of my mind we need a venue for music when I could. So I started promoting sound systems like I did in Jamaica, sometimes promoted some dances. I was the first person to bring Gregory Isaacs to Birmingham. A chap called Louis Fifield play a sound system called Studio City. He and I promoted Gregory in 1977 in the Grand Hotel because there were no venues available. There's Bernie sitting there who used to get the top rank venue and Mayfair and all that on boxing days and easter mondays because they were closed on those days but blacks showed him that black people goes out on those days so hey rent it to us so whilst promoting sound systems with in the back of my head a venue i left Mont pleasant center after three four years and i went up to west indian federation association opposite the prison where historically sugar mine had played on the stage and Believe it or not, Jimmy Cliff. That little venue, 212 Winston Green Road, guys guys, Jimmy Cliff played there and Sugar Miner before they became big. So whilst at 212 Winston Green Road and promoting, I was promoting more artists and so forth and so forth. I went to Dig Bed Civic Hall one Monday night, ordinary Monday night, to promote a group called Culture because I had studied the white man, the way he promotes. White rock promoters promote any day of the week. Blacks, because we're not plentiful with money, can't go to a concert every week. A woman needs time to do her hair, to buy her dress, her nail, her shoes, so you do a concert once every month. Valentine is a must and Easter month and all that. So in between, where does the white go? They go to any concert because the student world is the world that goes to rock concerts. So in studying that, I thought, right, after keeping this dance on a Monday night in dig I went to London and uh, made friends with a young lady called Louisa Mark, friends in the the sense that I wanted to promote her and I started to promote her. I sat down at the community centre one day with my head hurting. I've got an artist in mind. Where can we promote this artist? And a friend of mine, a young lad called Yui McIntouch, said he learned through the grapevine that top rank, as the whole hummingbird, now called Forum, became a Caribbean ballroom, top rank had it locked up for about 18 months. But no sign out there said to let, but he knew somebody in the white world who pinched him to say, top rank would well, let it, you know. By which time, one of the 12 organizations that I was involved with, because I work across about a dozen African Caribbean organizations, work near the city council. And activists try to get better things for employment and people and da 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 I got the number and I rang London and got the secretary of the manager for the properties of Top Rank. I put on my best English voice and I explained to him the purpose of wanting to get Top Rank, to lease it if I could. And he listened. One of the white persons who was fair, <laughs> he listened and he said, isn't this too big for you? And I said, no because it won't be just a black venue. It will be a central venue for blacks, but it won't be just a black venue. I would go into rock and pop and the rest of it. And he said to me, where would you get the money from? At that time, there was the old West Midlands County Council. In my community economic development work, I got near many counselors. And I asked a question from a certain council in the city council, and they said, we have got the money at the moment. And then I went to the county council, economic development chair, and I put an argument to him, and he said, if you can get this together on paper, we'll support you halfway. Uh, To cut a long story short, they paid £6,000 for a development group in Aston University called Small Business Development Centre. And they and I sat down and wrote a business plan, questioned the community. Would you like a venue? That, 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 yes. How would you like it? How often would you pay? What money would you pay to see artists? What kind of art is that? It came back positive. And so I put together a team under an editing called Not-for-Profit. That wasn't just my business at the time. A Not-for-Profit organization called We for Entertainment Limited seven directors. I looked and selected people in the community who meant well, who had skills. Some were in the city council, some were doing their own business, some were on the radio and the rest of it. And so we put together a team and the city council said, okay, how much you want? We're looking for 300,000 pounds, I told them. And they said, we haven't got that much money. How much can you find in the community? We found about 10,000 pounds, put it on the table. And then I learned by looking at the white world, that the venues out there that were promoting rock concerts had one thing that was important to them, the brewery. To sell the beer, the brewery lend you money. And so I approached two, three, four breweries. One came and said, okay, we will lend you most of the money to refurbish and do whatever we need of hold and the lease and so forth. And the lease... Eventually, we got it. We paid something like tw- only 20,000 pounds they took from us because I learned that there was somebody at top rank, a white person, who wanted to help the black community as much as they could. Now, I remember it opened in 83, but we were talking to them from 81, and you remember it was the time of riots and all sort of arguments. So there was a little hedge to us. We said we would like the freehold, and they said no. The card of the freehold because they had gotten 99 years from the city council. They couldn't pass it on to you. They want to keep at least one day for them to have ownership. We got 85 years lease. I am proud to say that I sat down myself, negotiated, took books, learned, put it to my committee. Some didn't have the experience that I had, one and two from the city council who sent someone down to help us, no one again knew, and I obtained an 85 year lease of the hummingbird. It wasn't called a hummingbird then. And so we decided to go community and to tell the community what we were doing. We opened 6th of August, 1983 with a band called Eat Wave. Uh, We closed in 10 months. Oh. Some of the members of my board of directors at the Hummingbird got a letter at two Windsor Green We I kept the registered office. Shrepps was suing us for £4,000. All we had to do was to make an offer to pay them so much a month. They got the letter, and they hid it from me at the Hummingbird. The young lady who was secretary said afterward when it was found out that they had said, I was earning an income by way of a salary. They were not. And we had a bit of a problem at the Bird, I'll tell you quickly. And if the Hummingbird closed their houses, would be in trouble. Nothing like that. Because those who understand business know that if you've got a company limited by a guarantee, then if anything went wrong, you only pay a pound each. Unless, as it changed later on, any of the directors did something naughty, then there would be a responsibility. Nothing like that. So my own colleagues closed it. But we fought. And got it back in 87 until 1993, when two black idiots fired gun outside. And my licensee was a white chap. There was a black licensee, another black licensee drew the history for different reasons. They couldn't continue. This white licensee turned up the next day at the police station, who didn't grant the license. The court did and said, I'm no longer the licensee. That is how the arming bird got closed. So anybody with ignorance talk about bad management, mismanagement, I can understand that, but they haven't got the knowledge that is how the Hummingbird closed eventually.
1: But it was a great Birmingham institution. What are you most proud of having promoted or done
2: with the Hummingbird? The opportunity given to artists, the employment given to people, the amount of events that were held there, not just by us, but by outside promoters. So an events venue... You have a rock show tonight, a rock show tomorrow, a reggae show weekend, a rock show next week, and so on. I had watched how whites promote. White promoters promote concerts. 7 o'clock, doors open. The support act goes on stage at quarter to eight or eight o'clock. More than one support act carry on till about 10 o'clock. The main act goes on stage 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. By midnight, you finish. So even on a midweek... You could be going to work tomorrow, but yet being able to go and watch a concert. Blacks, no. We go out on weekends and bank holidays, so we don't call what we do concerts. We didn't. We do sometimes now. We don't. We used to say we're going to a stage show and dance. The sound system would play to nice the place up before artists go on stage, come off, and the last hour or so, sound system again. Sometimes it created a problem between artists and sound system who didn't want to turn off. An artist, you pay money to come from Jamaica, waiting upstairs, and a sound system don't want to turn off the sound. Understand understand the eagerness of it. But because of that conflict, I keep saying hi because very few people were doing what I did. I then studied how the white man operated. And I spoke to a white promoter, and he told me that. He said... Do concerts, and you can do concerts Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And so I started doing that. Um, I remember I spoke earlier about culture on the Monday night, or the night at Dig Bed. And people would come out, but you have to space out, give especially women the time to earn the next month's salary to fix the hair. So I am proud of the amount of events that happened there, the amount of artists. Anybody who was anybody in reggae had to appear there. Bunny Whaler, Peter Tosh, John Holt, Gregory Isaacs. You know, go on. All of us here who understand it will know. If you put down alphabetically, you would go to Z, A to Z.
1: Now, Lloyd, on the pretty much the 20th anniversary of the BBC's... Extra black one. music today station. I heard that today. One extra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noted yeah, yeah. that today. Now, people again, who some of them in this room are too young to know, but the representation of black music on the BBC in the 80s and the 90s was absolutely appalling. There was a, a fantastic pirate station, which I used to listen to in Birmingham, called PCRL. PCRL,
2: yes, that's a Morris.
1: But you were very vocal as well in supporting black music and getting black music represented in the mainstream?
2: Because of what I said earlier, where I was born, I grew up with the good, the bad and the indifferent in West Kingston. As a youth club leader, I remember one evening I sat there talking to about 40 young persons. And about 16 guys came in, came upstairs and demanded... For one of them to come out because he had fired a shot at somebody the night before and they'd come for him and they, so I said, "No, you can't do that." And this guy came close to me and put a gun at my lips and said, "Open your mouth." And I, and he put the gun in my mouth. They call it rinsing off a gun in your mouth. I said, "If I'm going to die, let me die like this." But you not taking him out here. But someone in his group knew me well and dealt with him and said, "Get out." So I was always fighting for what is right for my people, firstly, then generally for my community, accepting that each nation has the right to fight for their rights. And in so doing, with the concept of a venue in my mind, I looked at the BBC in Birmingham, and those of us who were old enough to remember, there was nothing, and I challenged them personally, I challenged them about the amount of money black people were spending to buy a license and a recipe and so forth, and the amount of money they got from government. Eventually, we got something called Reggae Reggae One Hour every Sunday at BBC West Midlands. So there's a saying in philosophy, people must think about those who make contribution and give them their flowers before they die. Give me my flowers whilst I'm alive. And people have given me some flowers. (laughs) I've got a few awards here and there. But I'm saying that to say, many people might not realise the fight we had to fight before Pirate Station to get black music played on BBC and on BRMB. I'm glad I was in the forefront to update that.
1: Brilliant. I think that's a fun. That's worth a round of applause in itself. You know, it? Brilliant. And tell me about Birmingham then, Lloyd. You were, as you say, reluctant to come to England because of the cold, if nothing else, and... The initial reaction you got in the city was not welcoming. But now, how do you feel about Birmingham and the fact that, in many ways, it likes to fly the flag as a multicultural city? And the Commonwealth Games have reflected the fact that the city can celebrate its diversity. Birmingham
2: is a great city, very great city at the moment. Uh, When we came here, most of us, we came to do five years, seven years, ten years to go home. But we got stuck and we had to make our homes here. Uh, Birmingham is different now from when I came here. And um, you can live, you can get educated, you can get a job, you can create a job, and you can live in Birmingham reasonably, peacefully, and get ahead. But just before we go, let me just go back to the quickly and say this. When Yummingbird closed, I slept in the for three years. I put a rope in the roof... And I said to three of my colleagues, if they dare to take this from me, I'll commit suicide. But I didn't tell the public. But I told that to three colleagues who knew, so they would watch me anytime time. They think I was going to be silly. And I say to Top Rank, I need back the Abingbird. The black community need it. And the way we lost it, we shouldn't have done. They challenged me and said, find the money to pay for rent that is owed since it was closed and so forth. I then went to the famous Mr. Eddie Futrell. Is it worth
1: just a note here for younger listeners, Eddie Futrell was quite a famous, some people would say, notorious nightclub owner in Birmingham, famously is alleged to have seen off the Crays, the Cray twins, when they muscled in on the Birmingham nightclub scene. So he's somebody you might have thought would have been a rival, an enemy.
2: Well, Eddie Futrell, there were seven brothers of them, he was Mr. Futrell, king of clubs, he had members of the black community coming to his clubs, supporting him. And so, a gentleman called John McBean, used to work with him, who became my licensee and operations manager, got me to meet Eddie and we sat down and we talked. And Eddie told me he would never fight a black person to get rid of the club. He had a problem. Two of his security officers turned away a black young man and his girlfriend from one of their clubs. So enough here, can't take any But they weren't full. So it was a racist act. And they complained. They went to the racial board, and he had problem, and he sent to call me. Eddie asked me if I could get the young man and his business and their mother to come and have a talk with him. He'll say he's sorry. He'll give them some money, and so on, and so on, and so forth. I did what I could. As a result of that, I got close to Eddie. So when, in the three years, I was fighting to get back the hummingbird, one morning I woke up, and a sign was put up out there to let, and then another day it said, sold. And I, I went to Eddie, and he said, it's not me, but I'll tell you. Within two hours, Eddie Future rang me to tell me who had bought the hummingbird behind me. It was a man from Nottingham who had, a lot of amusement parks around the country. I rang him, and I, I didn't threaten him, but I spoke some harsh words, and I said, if you took this from us, it will be burnt down. We won't stop because this is for the black community. Anyway, long story short, he came to a meeting in Birmingham, and I asked two famous brothers in Birmingham to turn up at the meeting with me Say nothing, just sat down and be huggly. <laughs> <laughs> and they thought that I, it was, it. I, it was, yeah. I it was I Lloyd. I can't call the name publicly. <laughs> 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 but it worked. It worked. And they said, okay, let us go to court and um, and get a license and we'll do, do a deal with you. So I demanded in the meeting and they typed it out. I went to Hedy in the future, and the future said, Don't trust them. And he told me what to do. He said, don't trust them. I tell you what to do. Go into court, sit down. And when the magistrate asks anybody objecting, object and state the case. And I did that. And the magistrate threw them out of court, looked me over his glasses. Two weeks after, the man from Nottingham, unfortunately, in a meeting, damning me, dropped dead. Unfortunately. I rang his wife, and we had a good chat, and I said I didn't mean him any harm, but he shouldn't have come into Birmingham to do that. Anyway, so we got back to The Hummingbird 1987. And again, the host of any reggae artist you can call out to play The Hummingbird. And you ask me how proud I am. I am proud to have been the only, by then it was mine. I formed a new company called Unique Action Limited Trading as The Hummingbird, and it became mine. Um, again, employing nearly 40 persons, about 15 full-time and the rest of it and so forth. And everybody here, anybody who's 40 would not know the hummingbird much because it was closed 29 years ago. You would only have been 11. If you're about 60, then you're 21, 22, a little bit older than that. But the legacy of the hummingbird can never die. It's here for what it did. And I'm hurt that nobody... None of the five, six, seven black millionaires in Birmingham has it in them to get a venue.
1: I just want to ask you one final question, Lloyd, because right at the start, I mentioned the 12 children that you'd fathered, the number of grandchildren, -grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. You've mentioned Noel, who played professional football for Blues and Villa and was England Under-19 coach. Another one of your children has got an OBE for contribution to youth services. Joel. And as a man who had, was it three children by the time you were 19? Five. Five by the time you were 19. (laughs) The serious question, how important is family to you?
2: Family is very important, very, very important. When my son got his OBE award, he said to me, Dad, don't say anything yet. I, years and years ago... Was whispered to by some friends that they were going to put my name up for an award, and I said no. Long before Benjamin Zephaniah, I said no. Kakuma, here. In those days, when the cultural thinking and the blackness were in your head, you didn't want to have something called an MB to be members of the British Empire that enslaved you. That was our we thinking then. Around the time when my son got his OB, I met a man called Dr. Masinda from Zimbabwe, who sat down and educated me about world politics, world economics, and C was philosophy. And he said, if you ever got offered again, take it. Put your foot through the door and fight from there. So when my son said, Dad, I've been offered an OB, what you I said, it's your life, take it. So it was a good day when my son and the family invited me to go to Buckingham Palace. And I was walking up 39 steps, pretty red carpet, and I looked on the wall, and I was swearing inside of me. Robbery, historical theft, the power, the amount of money I see here, my ancestors in Africa. And that is how I went inside that room and sat down and watched William pin down this thing onto my son. But at least I came from West Kingston, I journeyed through and I stepped within the walls of Buckingham Palace, and I had a cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) But family is important because now I'm not very well. I might say I'm not dying, but I've got health issues. I had prostate cancer in 2014. Um, When they found they couldn't do surgery because it had crept a little bit. I'm going into my groin, I said. So I don't have to do radiotherapy. So I was blasted over 37 days with radiotherapy. And what it does to you, it messes up below your waist. Toilet quickly, toilet, toilet, toilet. So with that, I am not healthy, healthy, but I'm healthy. I'm not dying and so forth. So family right now, I take up my phone. Granddaughter, I need help. And they fight to come to help me, which is good. Who's coming today? Uh, Who's doing shopping for me? Who's doing whatever? And so, in that respect, you see the benefit of family. Plus, I know all my children's children. I have a book at home with the names. (laughs) 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 And I tick off, and I tick, and I tick off. But family is important. And I will go to my grave in the knowledge that none of my children has suffered because I wasn't there. I have the unfortunacy of, at 81 years of age, having a son who is just 19. I didn't plan that. (laughs) A young lady who came into my life quickly and was going to join the army. I was 62, she was 24. After a few glasses of red wine, he sips. (laughs) (laughs) A nice piece of steak and some food, we both said yes. And then two months after, she came back and said, I passed all my theory, I did everything. They said I'm a bit anemic, I must go away and come back in two months time. But guess what? I learned now that I'm pregnant, and I nearly died. At 862, when that child is 20, I'm gonna be 81, 82. He just finished school, got some distinction, and he's a beautiful young man. None of my children has suffered because I wasn't there. I've been there with all of them, and I'm proud of that. So the answer to your question is family is very important to me. That's a brilliant way to end, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. <laughs> Lloyd Blake.
0: On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund.